Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighbourhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. But this is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbour's respect, but he gained... Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. And Tom Holland, did the Hobbit gain anything in the end? He gains a ring. He does indeed. But he also gains... So this is Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbits, published in 1937 by J.R.R. Tolkien. And of course, we did the first episode on Tolkien earlier this week, um, to time of the Amazon series, and this is the second. But he gains a sense of adventure, a love of the quest, um, experience of foreign climes, and the sort of satisfaction of being part of a journey and part of a sense of camaraderie and all those kinds of things. And Tom, we talked in the first episode about uh, Tolkien's experience of the First World War. There's a little element of that in this book, don't you think? Of the journeying far from home with a band of friends. I mean, you see that even more in the Lord of the Rings, the sequel to the yeah. Hobbit. Yeah, and and then he comes back, and he's had experiences that he can't readily explain to people. Yes, um, and there's always a slight uh, feeling that these experiences have marked him so much that he isn't really a Hobbit anymore. Um, That's right. Yeah. I, I, he's changed. Yeah, and as you say, this will be a much profounder theme in Lord of the Rings, which is the sequel. But I think so. In the fir- in the first part, we were talking about how uh, Tolkien is this philologist. He's um, obsessed by the languages and the um, the literature and the history of the early Middle Ages, of the of the Northlands, and he writes this kind of English mythology, and it's full yeah. of high elves and people called Luthien and all this kind of stuff. And basically, it's everything that that people hate and despise about Tolkien who haven't read him. It's seen as being humorless and earnest and elves and dragons and things. No one would ever have heard of Tolkien had he not most improbably introduced into this world of of high elves and so on. Basically, uh, Stanley Baldwin. A kind of, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. A, a kind of... Um, and I say, so Stanley Baldwin is, you know, he smokes a pipe, he wears a waistcoat. So he's the British Prime Minister three times in the interwar period. Yeah, he's a man of the West Midlands. Um, and he, I suppose he, he, he becomes a bit notorious for not having rearmed Britain, for not having. Fair, that's, that's fake news and I, very harsh. However, however, there's an, yeah. an element of truth to it that um, he, he, he speaks for the English who have had enough of war and foreign troubles and don't really mm. want to have anything to do with it, just want to stay in their hobbit holes. Um, but Bilbo then goes off and realises that the world is quite a dangerous place. And again, this will be a huge theme in, in Lord of the Rings. Do you think that's fair? It's kind of- I think Bilbo is absolutely a Stanley Baldwin figure. And he's not, in fact, some of our listeners, um, some of our club members asked, tongue in cheek, is Bilbo um, Stanley Baldwin? And I don't think, obviously, Bilbo is not modelled on Stanley Baldwin, but Bilbo comes out of the same world that that Stanley Baldwin is the defining politician of. So Baldwin celebrated domesticity, the country, nostalgia, as you say, kind of introversion. And Baldwin sort of sells himself as there's a great sort of interwar archetype in Britain in the first part of the 20th century called the little man, the ordinariness, respectability, you know, tending your garden, 
yeah. doing DIY, you know, crumpets on T forks. Absolutely that. Hot Bilbo butter. Bilbo is is very recognizably, I would say, a character born of the post World War One age of the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. So Tolkien creates him and he's a modern figure. I mean Bilbo has tea. Bilbo has clocks. He's not he, a medieval And he character. smokes a pipe, doesn't he? He smokes a pipe. And he's in the Middle Ages, so he can't call it tobacco, so he has to call it pipe weed. So we were talking in the first episode about the different linguistic registers that Tolkien uh, uses, and you made what some listeners may have considered a blasphemous <laughs> and ludicrous comparison. Um, comparison with James Joyce. Tolkien does use different registers. He, he does think very carefully about language. And it seems to me that one of the, the the great beauty, the great charm of The Hobbit, which I think is a perfectly conceived children's book. So the plot is that that Bilbo gets chosen against by his will, the wizard yes. Gandalf, to go on to, a quest. to go on a quest with twelve dwarfs. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a story very much aimed at children, isn't it? I mean, it's there's yeah. no the Lord of the Rings. It is not, but it is a. I think it's impossible to to read. The Hobbit when you're nine and not enjoy it. It's perfectly calibrated. So the highlights are they they uh, they go across misty mountains. Uh, Bilbo gets lost. He meets a creature called Gollum who lurks in the depths of the mountains and has a, a ring that makes you invisible. Bilbo takes the ring. Gollum is distraught. It's the last thing that Bilbo hears is Gollum wailing after the ring. Uh, they go through a, a, a deep wood called Mirkwood. They um, arrive at giant a mountain. spiders in it. Giant yeah. spiders. Um, they get to a misty mountain where there's a dragon guarding great treasure. The dragon gets killed. The dwarves take back uh, a great jewel that they've lost. And they, 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 th- this mountain had been their kingdom that the dragon had stolen from them and they get it back. And then Bilbo yes. goes back home. And that's basically, that's basically yeah, that's very, very simplistic terms. That is exactly the plot. But the, as the charm of it is the collision of the modern and the archaic. So the dwarves, the dragon, the spiders, the mountains, these are all very clearly drawn from the world that Tolkien studied in his day job, you know, from the Norse myths, from the Finnish myths, from Anglo-Saxon poems. The names are taken from old English poems and things. But Bilbo, as we, you know, as we were saying, he's Stanley Baldwin dropped into this world. And that's the fun of it, I think. That's the the charm and the uniqueness that makes it different from the the high Victorian fantasy stories that Tolkien would yeah. have read as a boy. I mean, there's one other element, actually, I think, which is really interesting. Tolkien didn't just read stories about fairies. He also read the stories of Ryder Haggard, the imperial adventure stories, which are always quests. So King Solomon's Mines or She, which both were written in the 1880s, mid-1880s, about people going to Africa and discovering lost cities and mysterious queens and all this stuff. And there are definite elements of that in The Hobbit. Of, of sort of keys unlocking doors and lost maps and all these these things. And you can see why. If Tolkien had never written anything but The Hobbit, I think The Hobbit would still be loved as a great children's story. Yeah. Um, but the, the the what obviously transforms his reputation is that at the end of 1937, so the book's just been published, by the end of 1937, the publisher, Stanley Unwin, says, how do you fancy, you know, we'd love to do a sequel. And Tolkien says, well, I've had this train set in the attic. <laughs> I've been working on, which are all these kind of myths. And he obviously shows this to the publishers and the publishers just, (laughs) Oh God, (laughs) the the color drains from their faces. And they say, no, no, no. Can you basically do the Hobbit too? That's what we want. And he starts doing that and it gets completely out of hand. So from them commissioning it to publication is I think 17, best part of 17 years um, for the Lord of the Rings to be written. And the Lord of the Rings turns into, it's no longer a children's book. Um, it's, I mean, children can read it, but it's clearly not pitched as a children's book. Well, there's a, book there's a brilliant moment. Uh, so he's, he's, Tolkien is writing it and he, he's not focusing on Bilbo, but uh, what is it? Bilbo's adopted son? I can't remember what their exact relationship is. Nephew? Yes, but, uh, something like that. Bilbo's anyway, nephew Frodo, who he's basically adopted. Well, but this is before he becomes Frodo and he writes this note. <laughs> Bingo Bulger Baggins, a bad <laughs> name. Let Bingo equal Frodo. <laughs> I mean, oh, you right. couldn't have had Lord of the Rings if he was called Bingo Bulger Baggins. Well, <laughs> Tolkien's initial choices are always bad because we said in the last podcast that the elves were going to be gnomes, but also there's a character called Aragorn who, you know, to, not to spoil it for our listeners, but Aragorn is basically King Arthur, isn't he? He's, yes. he's an exiled uh, king who's, who's trying to, to get he's, – he's got this sword, which is the badge of his kingship. Ex- and he Excalibur wants to, kind of. wants yeah. to reclaim his, his throne. 
And um, but he's first introduced to our heroes as a as a mysterious ranger in a hooded figure, a man of the sort of the hills and stuff called Strider. But uh, Tolkien's <laughs> initial name for him was Trotter. Would, <laughs> so if they were called Dingo and Trotter, Dingo and Trotter, <laughs> I know. it would have been much like less a successful. Bingo and Trotter meet the gnomes, but but also um, the, uh, the the kind of the, the great villain who who essentially is a kind of Satan figure in Lord of the Rings is Sauron, Sauron yeah. the Great, Sauron the Terrible, um, and this is a figure who has already appeared in in you know Tolkien's collection of of myths and legends, in which he initially appears as a cat. Do you know? I that? didn't know he appeared as yeah. a cat. So no, initially, the initial name for, for Sauron was Tevildo, the Prince of Cats. Like kind of old possum. I mean, it's yeah, yes. So, but he got there in the end. To be he fair, did, well, to, he does uh, get Tolkien. there in the end because because the names are absolutely fundamental, and once you've heard the names, you know basically where they're coming from. Um, yeah, you so do. yes, you do, absolutely. So yeah, so he he sets off. So so we should just, I suppose, very quickly give the plot of Lord of the Rings, shouldn't we? I mean, it's quite it's, crikey. Imagine uh, condensing well, that in a minute. So basically, the ring that Bilbo took off Gollum turns out to be a ring that is the key to the the, the fate of the whole of Middle Earth, so the whole world of, of mortal men and dwarves and elves, and also these these kind of twisted, tortured elves who've become orcs, who are kind of monsters. Um, and whoever controls the ring basically will have mastery. And Sauron in 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 the, the distant land of Mordor is plotting um, a, a great military conquest of of the world, but to absolutely secure his victory, he needs to get this ring. And yeah. Frodo, Bilbo's nephew, uh, Gandalf the Wizard, who had originally sent Bilbo on the quest, um, Aragorn, who you mentioned, uh, uh, various other hobbits, um, a dwarf. An elf, um, another man. I mean, it was all this. It's impossible to describe it without getting the sense of hackles <laughs> going up from people who hate this kind of stuff. But anyway, basically, they they decide they had they they decide that the only thing that they can do is to destroy the ring. Which Sauron, it, it never crosses Sauron's mind that they would want to do that because the ring is the key to great power. So the because idea the that you would want weapon. the idea that you would want to get rid of the ring, that you would want to essentially to kind of celebrate your weakness is impossible for Sauron to comprehend. And in the end, uh, Frodo, who is, um, you know, I mean, he's he's a, a hobbit, very short, not the kind of person who anyone would, would think would be a great warrior. He ends up doing this great thing. He gets, he destroys the ring. Well, or does he? I mean, this is, that's, a, yes. okay. well, that's yes. an interesting um, yes. question itself. So the great criticism of the Lord of the Rings, for people who hate it, is that it is silly and childish and escapist. And I think we can... Um, we can safely debunk the escapism, uh, Tom, because we talked in the first podcast about the searing impact of World War One. Tolkien starts writing The Lord of the Rings just before the outbreak of the Second World War. So we're talking late 1937, yeah. 38, 39. So the storm clouds are very much, I mean, to use my favorite um, cliche, the storm clouds are very much gathering. In the first part, we talk, I talked about this chapter, The Council of Elrond which is held at a place called Rivendell, where the Fellowship of the Ring, the group of people who have come together to to go on this this mission, so Gandalf and Frodo and the Hobbits and the Elf and the Dwarf and so on and Aragorn, they decide that they're going to go and um, the only way that they can defeat Sauron, this kind of great menace that is brewing in the East, is, um, is, to, is to throw away the ring, and to throw it into this volcano. And he is writing that chapter in September 1939. So all the various people sitting around saying, how are we going to defeat this, this terrible this evil, evil, this yeah. terrible evil? How are we going to do it? It's clearly, I mean, it, it, it would be incomprehensible if it's not, you know, the, the news of the war isn't. Of course, I'm told the backdrop mind. to that. Well, I was about to say the device of the ring. So magic rings are ten a penny in kind of Norse myths and legends and fairy stories and folk stories. But the ring is such a brilliant creation. I mean, even if you despise Tolkien, the ring is a very sophisticated kind of literary device because the ring is not just the key to power. It's not just the ultimate weapon, but it, it is a symbol of corruption, of technological and sort of intellectual and moral corruption. So the more you use it, the more you become addicted to it. And over time, you lose your, as it were, your humanity, or indeed, if you're a hobbit, your hobbitness, um, the more you are exposed to it. So it's like a combination of it, it, the ring means power, 
and it kind of means mastery. It means dominion over other people, but also over the natural world. But it also is a kind of symbol of, of hubris. And it also kind of brings out the evil that is in you. Yeah. And I think, you know, we are talking about the mid 20th century, the age of concentration camps, of totalitarianism, of dictatorship, all these things. The ring is very clearly, the ring would not have been invented by a mid-Victorian writer, maybe even by an Edwardian writer, I think. But it feels to me like, I mean, Tolkien is writing The Lord of the Rings at the same time that people like, let's say, William Golding, uh, uh, he's going to go on and write The Lord of the Flies in the in middle of the 1950s. The other people are wrestling with questions about evil and power and, and thinking, you know, if we bomb the Germans, right. are we as bad as them? These right. kinds of issues are absolutely bound up with the ring, the device of the ring. Right. So, so Tolkien writes about this quite a lot to his son, Christopher, who was training with the RAF. And this is in the context of the RAF launching bombing campaigns over Germany. And Tolkien is very, very against this, very hostile to this. And he, he frames it specifically in terms of, of Lord of the Rings, which he's writing at, as these bombing campaigns are going on. So he says, you can't fight the enemy with his own ring without turning into an enemy. And he says of, of the bombing campaigns that it's an ultimately evil job, for we are attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring, and we shall, it seems, succeed. But the penalty is, as you will know, to breed new Saurons. So yeah. essentially, the, the Lord of the Rings is, is consciously written as a mirror that is being held up to the moral dilemmas that confront the Allies in the Second World War. Yeah, that's how much right. How much evil can you inflict in the name of defeating evil? Yeah. And at what point does doing that mean that you yourself become evil? Um, and I think that that in that sense, and this is what I absolutely didn't see when I read it as a child, but it, it seems very clear to me, The Lord of the Rings is the great novel on the horrors of the mid-20th century. And it, it spans all shades and kinds. So there's, there's Orwell is there as well. So um, there's a very, very kind of uh, big brother quality to, to Sauron and his lieutenants. The symbol of Sauron is, is a, a great unblinking eye, eye that is surveying eye. everything yeah. and will see you no matter where you hide. I mean, the gap again, yeah, that's a very Orwellian image, isn't it? And, and the orcs, they're always kind of telling on each other, you know, I'll give your name and number to the Nazgul, who are the, um, the kind of the, the ring race, yeah. the, the, the figures of terror who, who, who patrol the sky. So, so that's, it's it's even that again, just as um, I'm, I'm sure the ghost of the Red Baron haunts these terrifying. So the Ring Razor nine um, kind of cloaked figures whose faces you never see. They're just kind of images of the Grim Reaper, I suppose, and they ride on um, kind of pterosaurs. And Tolkien was actually yeah. asked, "Are they pterodactyls?" And he said, "No, but they're pterodactylish." Which, <laughs> which I love. Very precise. But but, but so, so one of the things at the end is that after Frodo has has thrown the ring into the uh, the um, where I'm giving all kinds of spoilers away, but what the hell, people know this. The, 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 the quest does, to that extent, Frodo succeed. Frodo doesn't throw it in I, Okay, okay. We won't give away how and why it happens, but the ring is destroyed and Mad yeah. Doom erupts and Gandalf gets on an eagle and flies across Mordor and rescues him and Sam and bring them back. And people say, well, everybody now. Well, people, and people say, well, why didn't they just do that in the first place? Well, the answer is very clear. The, uh, the Nazgul on their pterodactyls are essentially um, a, a kind of air defense system. You can't penetrate it. And until they've been destroyed, which they do once the ring gets destroyed, that's a very clear parallel. You know, clearly the, uh, yeah. how, how you defend territory from aerial intrusion is absolutely a part of it. And all the more so uh, because Tolkien was an air raid warden. Oh, was he? I didn't know. That, that's a very nice. Um, he was. Very nice so he was an air raid warden in North Oxford. And uh, again, uh, in um, the echoes of the Blitz, the echo of the aerial war are through Lord of the Rings. So you have, with a piercing cry out of the dim sky, fell the winged shadows, the Nazgul stooping to the kill. And this could be, you know, the war in heaven, or it could be yeah. Stukas. And Tolkien describes people in a, a besieged city, besieged by the Nazgul. They thought no more of war, but only of hiding and crawling and of death. And that could be about the Germans bombing London, or it could be about the British bombing Hamburg. But Tolkien is also very aware, isn't he? I mean, that thing about the British bombing Hamburg, he's he's aware in a way that previous writers of this kind of adventure story had not been, I think, of the of the amb of the moral ambiguity um of the of the age. So we talked when we were talking about the Hobbit, you mentioned this character, Gollum, 
that uh, Bilbo gets the ring from. So Gollum is this sort of wizened, goblin-like creature who it turns out used to be a hobbit who has been who's been corrupted. And you know, were this a Victorian story? So some people have said Gollum is 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 a kind of vision of Grendel from Beowulf, Tolkien's great sort of academic obsession, um, or he's a vision, he's a version of the character Gagool from Ryder Haggard's book King Solomon's Mines, Tolkien's great favorite when he was a boy. But actually, as the Lord of the Rings goes on, it becomes clear that um, Gollum and Frodo, there's a real Jekyll and Hyde quality to them, that in some ways they are mirrors to one another. And actually, as the book goes on, Gollum becomes more like Frodo and Frodo becomes more like Gollum. So the classic thing that people say who hate Tolkien and hate the Lord of the Rings is it's very simplistic. It's goodies and baddies, kind of black hats and white hats. Um, and actually, that's not really true at all. Their great hero, Frodo, by the end of the book, he's becoming increasingly corrupted and the lines between good and evil are becoming increasingly blurred. And again, I think that's something that you write in the 1940s, but you wouldn't have written in the 1840s or the 1890s even. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. And I think that there are morally complex figures who who are redeemed or who are lost. Um, I, I think the idea that it's just goodies and baddies, only somebody who hasn't read the book could think that. However... I, I do think that that criticism is responding to something that I think is precisely what has made Lord of the Rings so successful, which is that it does have a very strong unrelativistic sense of good and evil. Yeah. Um, and Tolkien is a Catholic. He believes in good and evil. He believes in God. He believes in, in hell. And I think a huge part of, of, of the reason for the Lord of the Rings success is that it packages for people who are not may not be christian who may find a lot of the institutional baggage of christianity off-putting who may find a lot of the theological implications of christianity unsettling it, it packages for them the incredible drama of that christian story of heaven and hell of redemption of there being good of there being evil um in a way that is clearly incredibly powerful well, that's interesting that you say that, Tom, because, of course, it's a, in some ways it would appear to be a pagan book, right? It's, it's, it draws inspiration from the Norse myths. The characters don't go to church. There are no churches, it seems. There's no, no talk of God. There's obviously no talk of Christ. Um, so tell us about some of the ways that you think it's a Christian book then. So we, we, we talked about how there's this tension between the, the kind of the high medieval, well, the, the, the medieval quality and the, um, you know, the 1930s, 1940s waistcoat wearing uh, tea fork yeah. wielding quality of, of, of middle England. Um, and I think there's a similar tension between the fact that Tolkien is a very, very devout Catholic. I mean, a really devout Catholic, uh, but he's also obsessed by the, the, the literature and the spirit of the old North, as he puts it, um, which is, which is pre-Christian and in which um, characters live believing that everything is going to be destroyed. And that all you can do is show courage in the face of utter destruction. Yeah. And that is, a, again, that it's, it's an incredibly creative tension, I think, that runs throughout the book. So God is, is, is not mentioned in the book. There is no, there's nothing that we would recognize as religion in Lord of the Rings. Um, there's no overt reference to anything that's Christian. But the, the Christian elements are clearly very, very present, of which the most obvious is the way in which Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring generally are committed to the idea that rather than use something that will make you strong, you, th you throw it away. And the mm -hmm. echo there of um, the Christian idea of the crucifixion, that God himself becomes weak and suffers death rather than kind of manifesting himself in glory. Yeah, the emphasis on sacrifice. Yeah, so Christ, Christ you know, gives up his divine power to suffer death and thereby to redeem the world. And that, that is very clearly intended by Tolkien because um, the date that he gives for uh, the, um, the destruction of, of Sauron, the defeat of Sauron, the, the, the destruction of the ring is the same day that in Christian mythology, it's the date of the, the creation of light. You know, when God says, let there be light, it's the, it's the date that uh, Abraham is supposed to have been told to sacrifice Isaac and is prevented from doing it. Uh, it's the date that, um, Christ is conceived in the virgin's womb. It's the date yeah. that he suffers death, uh, 25th of March. That is, that is a very clear signal, I think, as to what Tolkien is doing. He's trying to kind of preserve the, you know, this, 
I mean, what's what's odd about Lord of the Rings and what's odd about Tolkien is that in some sense, he clearly believes that the plot of Lord of the Rings really happened, that in some sense, elves and dwarves and everybody did kind of exist. And to that extent, I think he sees it. So Christian writers had this idea that what they called a, a, a preparatio evangelium, a kind of a that, that pagans were in some sense aware of what was to come, the Christian story that yeah. was to come. And there are foreshadowings of it. And I think that 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 is what Tolkien is doing in Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings serves in that way. Um, and I think that, that 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 kind of power is is really is, is, is a really strong explanation for why people feel it. And it, it may be that it's not just filling um, a, a kind of Christianity-shaped hole in, in English life, but specifically a Catholic-shaped hole. Oh, um, that's a big claim, Tom. Well, so so Lord of the Rings is about loss. Yeah. Everybody, everybody apart from humans, apart from men in Lord of the Rings, ends up losing. They destroy Sauron, but as a result, they themselves are destroyed. So the elves, the dwarves, the well, the dwarves are going to go off to their to their underground the, lairs, aren't they? But even presumably the hobbits, they they yeah. they, they are all going to fade. Um, and because everybody says the world of men, you know, this is a new age. The, all the, be- the sort of the great sort of um, polycultural mix. Of yeah. the third age of Middle Earth is doomed, and the elves actually leave Middle yeah. Earth for good, don't they? They disappear they off into what, the equivalent of heaven, I suppose. And so there's a kind of absence there, which clearly for Tolkien on one level is about the, the sense of loss that he suffered in the war, the loss of his friends. The, yeah. It's it's about the um, the sense of loss that you know he goes to say a hole and it's been so, you know yeah. turned into a. <laughs> Suburb. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's a fabulous book by Matthew Lyons. I don't know if you read it there and back again, where he goes around following in the footsteps of Tolkien. And he, has, he, he points out, which I didn't know, that um, there's this vision of what will happen to the Shire. And in the very first draft, uh, this great chocolate factory gets built. <laughs> Oh my God, Bourneville. And so Bourneville, which is just down the road from, uh, from Zerhold. So obviously there's this idea that, that that's loss, you know, that, that the woods get destroyed and you have chocolate factories. Wait, wait for Cabra's dairy milk. But, but Tolkien sees this in the broader sense. So he said, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains and in a legend may contain more clearly and movingly some samples or glimpses of final victory. So only a Catholic growing up in a Protestant country, I think, could could frame Christian history perhaps mm. in quite that way. But it echoes a, a, a very famous line from Galadriel, who is the queen of the elves, who is the, the main figure, I gather, in, uh, in the Amazon series. Yeah. And she says, you know, she's, she's an elvish queen who, who, who's, who's, whose whole power will be destroyed when the ring is destroyed, but who is committed to the idea that, that destroying the ring is the only way to win. So she is essentially allowing her own power to be destroyed in the cause of a greater victory. And she, she echoes exactly that, those lines of Tolkien. She says, together through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. Well, that idea of the long defeat is quite a Norse myth idea, though, isn't it? They, they believe, there was a terrible fatalism to the sort of the Viking sense of their world and their destiny. Absolutely. Within it. And, but the weird spin that Tolkien gives that is to recalibrate it as a Catholic, yeah, as, as a Christian story, and that at the end, the end of days, victory will be won and everything will be redeemed and everything will be restored and everything will be given back to life. I mean, I think the interesting thing about I, I agree with you that um, – Tolkien's Catholicism is tremendously important to him, and, it, and clearly he felt that it was there on every page of the Lord of the Rings. But it's it's interesting that the readers don't see that often, and it's certainly not as glaring to unsympathetic readers as, let's say, the Christianity in the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. His friend, I mean, people no. really, really sort of kick against. I, I mean, well, I love C.S. Lewis's books, but people kick against them because they think it's pure Christian apologetics. But nobody really says that about the Lord of the Rings, do they? They, they don't, because it's not an allegory in the way that uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is. It, it's much stranger than that. And I think that Tolkien's Christianity is much stranger because it's shot through with this, this sense of pessimism that derives from his fascination with the, with the Northern legends. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also the way in which he fuses it with echoes of contemporary events. So we talked about Eliot, T.S. Eliot, yeah. who was also an air raid warden during the war as Tolkien was during the Blitz. Um, and in the Four Quartets, so Little Gidding most famously, Eliot is looking back to history to make sense of, of, of the horrors of the, of the present, pretty much in the same way that, that Tolkien is. Um, and in that, he meets with a, a kind of ghostly figure 
in the in the midst of of an air raid. Um, and then Elliot writes that in the disfigured street, he left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. And this kind of conjures up the dawn after an air raid. And in Lord of the Rings, you get this very, very famous moment where um, Gandalf is confronting the Lord of the Nazgul, the Witch King, on his pterodactyl. So a bit like, um, you know, the Nazgul has descended a bit like a kind of German bomber over London. Yeah. And then suddenly they hear in the distance, they hear horns wildly blowing so it's exactly the same thing the blowing of the horn and the blowing of the horn ends the air raid dawn comes light comes rohan had come at last rohan had come at last so so the echo of little gidding yeah is i think very clear and it, it they so elliot and um tolkien both knew this guy charles williams who was a kind of very mystical christian of the kind that would exactly appeal to both elliot and tolkien and i wonder if there's some you know I don't know if some link if, there. If Tolkien read Eliot, but that sense of air raid wardens, of of danger from the sky, of the way in which it gets framed in kind of Christian mythology, it's a it's a very very strange inimitable mix. But both Eliot and Tolkien are doing it, and they're doing it in a way that I think speaks incredibly profoundly to people who may not be remotely Christian or may not be remotely interested in any of the. Uh, any of the kind of the paraphernalia, the mythic paraphernalia that the, the two men are respectively drawing on, whether in poetry or in prose, Eliot and Tolkien are both kind of onto something that people clearly not just in Britain, but around the world find incredibly powerful and moving. And I think it is that kind of fusion of Christian mythic ideas with a hardly one sense of not exactly victory over the horrors of the of the age, but a sense that they can at least be be faced that they, you, yeah. you, know, you can look into their face. And I think that's the power of it. Tom, before we started this podcast, I think um, Tolkien skeptics and rest is history skeptics would have expected us to talk about three things that have expected the appearance of Stanley Baldwin, that have expected <laughs> you to dissect the air defenses of Mordor, and they'd have expected <laughs> Christian mythic ideas. And we've and given them dinosaurs. all three in the, and dinosaurs in the first half. <laughs> so in the second half, I think we should talk a little bit about Tolkien's politics, which I think are really interesting. I think The Lord of the Rings is a political book and and race, because this, of course, is something that the Amazon series has tried to, has, has very visibly tried to change. And that and Tolkien and his relationship with race is something that for his critics is, off, is now, I think, probably item number one on the charge sheet. And we will be discussing that after the break. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It was one of the saddest hours in their lives. The great chimney rose up before them. And as they drew near the old village across the water, through rows of new mean houses along each side of the road, they saw the new mill in all its frowning and dirty ugliness. A great brick building straddling the stream, which it fouled with a steaming and stinking outflow. All along the Bywater Road, every tree had been felled. That is from a chapter called The Scouring of the Shire in Lord of the Rings, and it describes the return of the hobbits from their great quest back to the Shire, this um, vision of uh, Edwardian rural England, to discover, Dominic, that yeah, uh, the house builders wrong. have been at work. <laughs> yes. So there are a load of nimbies. The developers have been in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is, the, now this is a chapter. This is one of the last chapters of the book. It's, it's almost entirely missing, well, pretty much entirely missing from the film versions because the director of the films, Peter Jackson, said that he didn't really know what, to, know what to do with it and he felt it was jarring. And I think that's such an interesting choice that he made. I think it's the wrong choice because to me, this is one of the elements of the book that clearly lifts it above the, the high Victorian fantasy adventure quest model that Tolkien had clearly had in mind somehow since he was a boy so again one of the common things that tolkien's critics say is well it's just a sort of trite childish story of good versus evil the the baddies are defeated good triumphs hurrah hurrah and this is you know fit for for infants and adolescents um i think this chapter completely gives the light of that so clearly at some level there's an, there's a first world war thing going on here so famously David Lloyd George, not a friend of the rest of his history, had um, promised British Britain servicemen that they would return to home is fit for heroes. And actually, they returned to a very grey, miserable decade, the 1920s in Britain, not the roaring 20s at all. 
an age of high unemployment and homelessness and injured servicemen begging on street corners and, and so on and so forth. So there's an element of that about it, I think. The returning veteran, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Vietnam veterans returning in the 1970s to America. Um, the returning veteran who, who sort of feels miserable. But also, I mean, I think this absolutely cuts to the heart of Tolkien's political and religious and kind of cultural vision. That, as you said, Tom, there is no final victory. That they return home to find that in a very banal and humdrum way, their cherished bit of England, as it were, has changed. It has become more modern. It's become more industrial. There are, as you as you described in that brilliant passage, there are chimneys and factories. So, in other words, Sarehole has become Birmingham. Yeah. Um, in the Bourneville has moved in. Right. The, the Cadbury's manufacturers uh, have set up shop. Um, but also, I think there are clearly an obviously ideological political dimension. Gerard Tolkien was very conservative. I mean, he was insanely conservative. Insofar as, you know, he must have voted because most people did vote. And I imagine he would have seen it as his civic duty. I think it's almost impossible to imagine him voting anything other than he would have voted, I think, grudgingly for the conservatives. But, I mean, Dominic, Stanley Baldwin's great. He, he was a great builder, wasn't he? Great house builder. But Stanley Baldwin, of course, never went on a quest. I think this is the issue. <laughs> yeah, got space. So, yeah. so, so, um, Stanley Baldwin is Bilbo in chapter one, but not subsequent chapters. But I he's, you the know, they're coming back and they're, they're they're seeing all these houses being built. Well, they don't like the houses. They don't yeah. like the houses. Um, but I think a lot of, I mean, so the scouring of the Shire is written. That chapter is written, I think, after the end of the Second World War. So under the Attlee think, government. Under the Attlee government. Now. Some people, you know, Tolkien bitterly resisted any claims that there was any kind of allegory. He said, I don't like allegories. The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. And I think it's not meant to be an allegory for the Attlee government. But as with the climate of the 1930s, it's hard to believe that the headlines and the sort of the cultural conversation in the late 1940s didn't influence what he's writing. So to give you some examples... The Shire is now under the command of a chief who sends out gatherers and sharers who go around, we're told, counting and measuring and taking things off to storage so that the farmers don't see their own um, products again. The inns have been closed because the chief doesn't hold with beer. I mean, that sounds very much like a kind of early 20th century conservatives complaint that, that do-gooding liberals and interfering bossy labor politicians are closing all the pubs. And the authorities have recruited hundreds of policemen in the book. They're called sheriffs, um, who we're told like minding other folks' business and talking big. And if any of us small folks stand up for our rights, they drag him off to the lock holes, to the prison and so on. So all of this is, it's a portrait of a world in which of surveillance, of ration books, of interference, of big government, um, of people building council houses, uh, of a sort of, um, an, an, of an anti-conservative um, administration. Now, again, I don't think Tolkien means it deliberately as an attack on the Attlee government. I don't think he would do anything so simplistic. But I think there is a sense in which this is – he described himself once as a, as a sort of conservative anarchist. And I think that's exactly what this is. This is, you know, leave us alone, don't interfere. Um, but it's also, I think, that pessimism, that gloom, you know, because we've been led to believe – that the hobbits are the incarnation of Englishness and of good heart, stout hearted Englishness. And yet it turns out lots of them are happy to collaborate with the new regime. Lots of them are happy to inform. Um, we're told that they have lost the will to fight, that they've shrunk inside their own homes. So it's very down. It's very gray. It's very down, but you can understand why Peter Jackson didn't want to put it in his Hollywood movies. But I think the fact that he didn't suggest to me that he misunderstood what Tolkien was trying to achieve. I mean, it, it appears very fleetingly as a kind of glimpse of the future, but in yeah, the, but, but in that future, as I remember, it's the orcs who are doing it, and not the not the hobbits. Not the hobbits which is because the point so, is, it's the hobbits themselves yeah. that are doing most of the heavy lifting in this sort of new regime. So, I mean, when you say that Tolkien is conservative, I mean, I don't think that adequately expresses. <laughs> I mean, he's he's not an enthusiast of de for democracy, for instance. Because of all his obsession with kingship, for example, he he's. I mean, he's literally in favour of a sacral kingship. I, I, and so this is what Aragorn becomes, this kind of King Arthur figure in Lord of the Rings. Yes. This is basically Tolkien's, <laughs> what, you know, that there should genuinely be a, some king with a magic sword that will, yeah. you know, everything will be 
rather the king with the magic sword. And I think he kind of believes that in the same way that he thinks that elves once really walked, you know, England's green and pleasant land. He doesn't. He doesn't believe it. You mean he doesn't? He doesn't believe it. But but I mean, clearly he. I mean, he is massively, massively not of the left. Yeah. He's. I mean, he's so reactionary that basically his his vision of the ideal form of government, you know, is six three seven or something. Um, so. But I think I think that another aspect of, of of that passage that I read, where the trees are chopped down to make ways for houses, is it, it's it's a reminder of just um, how conservative what we would now call the green movement was for most of the twentieth century. So yeah. so 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 it, t- today, by and large, green causes are associated with the left. Yes. So there's the kind of the watermelon is the. Is is the accusation from people on the right that you're you're green on the on the surface and red in but the, in the heart, the purest but, red deep down? But yeah. but actually, one of the many ways in which Lord of the Rings is very very much the novel of the twentieth century is is that Tolkien is way ahead of anxieties about where the environment is going, um, and his yes. his his association. To, to the degree that basically he's against the industrial revolution. I mean, wholesale. Yeah. Lots of kind of radical green, you know, radical greens on the left today would be who would say, you know, it's it's the whole problem is industrial civilization and capitalism. We need to get rid of it. I mean, Tolkien would wholeheartedly agree, but his solution he wouldn't be that we go back and have a kind of communitarian um, existence. We go back and we have a king with a magic sword. But basically, yeah, bring back the feudal system. His, you know, again and again and again throughout Lord of the Rings, um, industry, uh, the destruction of trees. He loves trees with a, again a kind of mystical sense. The wizard who is, again, I'm giving away spoilers here, but who turns out to be behind the scouring of the Shire, he's he's obsessed with technology. He destroys trees. He burns them. He he turns what had previously been clean, flowing rivers into slurry tips. So very like the water companies at the moment. We're told he loves wheels and contraptions and all these kinds of things. But also, again, a, a very kind of um, a prefiguring of modern anxieties. He breeds this kind of terrifying race of monsters he's he's kind of experimenting with what we would now call genetics i suppose even though genetics hadn't been developed at that point so he's he's such a paradoxical figure that he's so reactionary he's so reactionary and yet in so many ways he's so progressive well that's obviously why he why his books yes why hippies come to love them why the counterculture in the 60s in come to love them yeah. yeah so that's an interesting story in itself tom because you know his books were they weren't massively successful in America until somebody printed a pirate edition in nineteen. Is that the one with two emus on the cover? I think it's something like that. Had a Christmas tree and two emus. S- he asked, "Why have you done that?" And he said, and "He said I've never read it." <laughs> no, I think that's actually a British. I think that's oh, the first it? British edition had had exactly that. But no, the American version, Ace Books, did it in nineteen sixty-five. It was a complete rip-off because they claimed that, that Tolkien had no copyright in America. He then produced a new edition for America that he did have copyright on. And of course, that comes out at precisely the moment when there's a huge appetite for kind of countercultural stuff. So the Vietnam War is in full swing. The hippie movement has taken off. People start wearing these badges that say Frodo lives, Gandalf for president. Tolkien is hobbit forming. So this is, yeah, Tolkien is hobbit forming. So this is Richard Nixon's America. And Tolkien takes off and he is seen as a Bible for countercultural, small is beautiful, you know, um, the green movement, the age of limits. Um, and that in a way, I mean, that's, that, that's still part of his appeal, I think, particularly to sort of, to countercultural people who might be otherwise uncomfortable with some of his politics. But what is the, I mean, you mentioned about, um, the wizard Saruman breeding these, um, these creatures, these monsters. And of course that raises a question that, that is not one that people posed to uh, or people addressed to Tolkien's work 20 or 30 years ago, but they certainly do now, which is about Tolkien and race. Because you see quite often now critics, particularly in America, who will say Tolkien, uh, by pitting hobbits, men, elves, dwarves against this, this race of monsters called orcs, he is basically, he has created a racist work um, that racial assumptions uh, permeate the Lord of the Rings, that it is, you know, the North and the West are good, the East and the South are bad, all of this kind of business. Tom, what do you think about all that? Do you think there's some truth in that? I think there's no question that, um, I mean, I said at the beginning of the epi- of, of the first episode we did that I think Tolkien's influence on how the Middle Ages is seen is absolutely 
fundamental at the most popular level. And I think that idea of kind of white, white skinned, golden haired kings with magical swords fighting black hordes of orcs is crucial part of what animates a sense that the study of the Middle Ages is inherently racist or has a huge problem with racism. So in this the is a big States. thing in American yeah. younger academics who now say the whole field of medieval studies is permeated with white supremacy. I mean, I was only reading something about this at the weekend. The American Historical Association has been cancelled um, in recent days, Tom. So, yeah. so this is a huge issue, um, particularly in the United States. And I, th- I think that um, Tolkien is a man of his time well, he's not even a man of his time. I mean, he's a man who's, who's reactionary even by the standards of the 30s and 40s. So I don't think that if Lord of the Rings was published now, I think that uh, sensitivity readers would not really let quite large elements of it go through. So I don't think yeah. that they would they would allow orcs to be described as black-skinned, which... Or yeah, Swarthy, for example, swarthy. is the kind of word that... I, I very means, much yeah. doubt that they would allow... Um, so that the... the, the Kingdoms of men who ally themselves with Sauron, the Dark Lord, are clearly modelled on Arabs and Ethiopians and people from the Deep South, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's pretty clear from from Tolkien's own writings that he's he's drawing on that. There are um, the dwarves are pretty clearly that you know there are echoes of of how medieval people saw medieval Christians saw the Jews in them. The dwarves are interesting in the in the Hobbit lost their homeland lost their homeland there are 12 of them like the tribes of israel their language is loosely based on on hebrew so i think that tolkien is using well it's it's not so much modern categories of race but medieval categories of difference Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so in a way that i think people would 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 find awkward now but i think that you know tolkien is reactionary because essentially his 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 prejudices if you like are medieval ones when he's describing the people who are allied to Sauron attacking the city, the great city, the shining city, this city yeah. that is a capital of a long fall, you know, a, all that remains of a, a once great empire. I think he's very consciously evoking echoes of the Arab sieges of Constantinople or the Hungarian sieges of the siege of Augsburg that gets foiled by Otto the Great with his great cavalry yeah. charge and all that kind of thing. And I think he's doing that partly because these are the echoes that move him. They're bred of his reading. But I think also because he's he's situated in a world where there really aren't that many Arabs living in yeah. Oxford. So he doesn't really ever come across them. So he does he's thinking of them as people who are kind of remote. You know, these I think are historical figures. I think it wouldn't occur to him in a million years that an, uh, an Arabic reader would ever come across w- Would his ever book. read it. And I think that, um, and you may feel that that's kind of special pleading for him, but I think that you can see what he's doing with the med- medieval stereotypes with what he does with the Jews. And he did know Jews. So so when he's an air raid warden, his fellow air raid warden for a lot of that time is is um, a Jewish scholar with whom they get on, they, they get on very well. And Tolkien was a great admirer of the Jews. He's asked when his book is published in Germany, he is uh, he needs to fill in a form about whether or not he's of Aryan stock. Now he writes one letter where he says he's really offended by being asked if he's of Aryan stock. He he's you know he he doesn't really recognise the category. And then he writes another letter, I think, where he's asked if he's got Jewish antecedents, and he says, I mean, to cut a very long story short, he basically says. I wish I did. I'd be very happy if I did. Yeah, I don't. he says. So he gets asked if if Tolkien is a Jewish name, and he says it is not Jewish in origin, though I should consider it an honour if it were. And he also he he was very hostile to the way that that Wagner portrayed Jews in the Ring Cycle. He yeah. hated the Ring Cycle. He hated everything to do with Wagner. Uh, and I think that there is a very conscious element within his portrayal of the the dwarves who go on the the mission to get back the lonely ma- to get their kingdom back from the dragon. I think there is a kind of echo there. Um, I mean, so he's, and he's, he actually said in an interview, uh, so 1962, I think, 1963, mm-hmm. something like that, that I do think of the dwarves like Jews at once native and alien in the habitation, speaking the languages of the country, but with an accent due to their own private tongue. So no, no author today would ever frame it in those terms. But equally, Tom, I don't think you would look at that and say the, that's the word, those are the words of a vicious anti-Semite, would you? I mean, you wouldn't remotely no. say that. No, they're not. So, so Tolkien is, is, 
basically recalibrating medieval negative stereotypes of Jews in a way that he sees as heroic. And he mm. is, in doing that, he's doing what he always does, which is he draws on the legacy of old English poetry. So he translated um, a book called Exodus, which portrays Moses as a great warrior. And so that's what he's doing with the dwarves. He's portraying, a kind, you know, he's portraying Jews that are medieval, that are yeah. integrated with the Northern myth. So he gives the dwarves in, uh, in uh, The Hobbit nordic names so he's fusing them which is and you see the same thing with minas tirith which is this this city that is clearly based loosely on constantinople it's a, a kind of rome that never falls but he also compares that to um the uh the the, the people who live there with uh, as having the kind of the, the the clear purity of jewish monotheism he says so he's he's fusing the there the roman and the jewish so he's yeah. fusing these elements that are often not fused in a way that suggests to me that he absolutely was not anti-Semitic. I was going to say everything we know from his writings more generally, Tom, is that he's not somebody who, by the standards of mid-century Britain, wears prejudice heavily. I mean, he he everything we we know about him. So he writes to his son and says how much he deplores um, the the racial system in South Africa, for example, yeah. in his native South Africa. He there's also other elements. So, for example, it's sometimes said, well, his books are all about whiteness and. Um, and that's actually not quite right. I mean, there is a character who we've already mentioned called Saruman the White, who is the very embodiment of whiteness, who actually turns out to be the most dreadful toe rack. Similarly, that you mentioned the thing about um, the armies who end up allied with the, the baddies, um, are, are dark-skinned, they're from the south and all this. But there's a very telling moment when one of the heroes sees one of them and he's dead, and he looks at him and he feels sorry for him and he thinks he's a man just like me, you know, well, he's not a man because the heroes are hobbits, but he's a, he's a, he's a, a person of, you know, dignity and whatever. Yeah. What, what is his Just wife, like me. You know, what, what's, what's his story? Behind? What's his story? What's, yes. what, what has brought him here? How tragic that he's lying dead and all this sort of thing. And I think also the other element that people often talk about with Tolkien, Tolkien juxtaposes light and shadow. He talks about the darkness, the dark Lord, the black speech, all of those kinds of things. And people say, oh, golly, this is, uh, this is imperialism and, and white supremacy and stuff. I think that's completely wrong. Those things are all there in the Norse myths, the idea of shadow versus light. And they're all there in the Bible. So Tolkien's great favorite saint was, you know, he's named John. So St. John, who writes about, yeah. you know, the light coming into the darkness. Um, and that sense of light is very, very strong throughout Lord of the Rings. It's theologically bred. Tolkien had no interest, I think, in real interest in racial politics in the way that it would be understood now. No. Um, sure and he's writing right. it before that becomes a kind of current issue. Um, but having said that, I mean, I do think that we talked about how, how Tolkien has no interest really in his the German side. He identifies very strongly with this sense of of being um, the progeny of generation after generation after generation of people who've lived in the, the West Midlands in Mercia. And that is that sense of identification with the West Midlands is so strong to him. So it's there in the, in the portrayal of the Shire. The Shire is the yeah. West Midlands, it's Warwickshire, but it's also there in Rohan, which is this, this kingdom, which is clearly, it's not just an Anglo-Saxon kingdom. It's the Mercian kingdom. It's the kingdom, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. kingdom. that's Mercia in, if they had horses. Had, basically, if they had, isn't it? If they, so Mercia is the Latin for the mark. And Rohan is called the Mark. I mean, it, 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 it really couldn't be clearer. Their emblem is a white horse on a green field. So that's drawing on the white horse of Uffington, which is on the side of this hill, this green, this green field. Um, the language that they speak corresponds not just to Old English, but to the Old English as spoken by the West Mercians. And you have this brilliant letter that Tolkien writes to his son, where he's objecting basically to globalization. He's ob objecting to the way that everywhere is becoming the same. Um, and he says, the bigger things get, the smaller and duller or flatter the globe gets. It is getting to be all one blasted little provincial suburb. And Tolkien's solution to this is that he is going to refuse to speak anything but Old Mercian. So <laughs> Tolkien's reaction to globalization is, let's speak Old Mercian. So yeah. that, that, is a, that sense of identification with this particular place so the soil, or actually the air, he calls it. So as early as the 1917, he's talking about the, the distinctive air. And interestingly, he counterpoints that uh, with, with the, the, the Mediterranean world. So he's counterpointing the air of, 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 of the north, so Scandinavia and Britain and Ireland, with the air of Roman Greece. 
but that's what's important to him. But I think it is possible to misinterpret that now. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that if Tolkien is writing, you know, if his ambition was to write a mythology for England, it's important that that mythology, if it's to have any sense of some sense of being a mythology for England, that it should be a mythology for England as England is now, as well as as it was in the forties when he wrote it. But Tom, I mean, and that, I mean, that's a demented ambition, isn't it, to write a mythology for your own country when one, as, as he sees, it doesn't exist. But I mean, by any standard, you would have to say he succeeded because the Lord of the Rings, you know, this this project that would seem completely ludicrous to many writers in the 1930s and 1940s, and indeed got you know some considerable stick from early reviewers. That project turned out to be one of the most successful cultural projects of the 20th century. Completely, completely. But, don't, but, but wouldn't you agree that the risk is that this mythology for England that he created in the 40s, and which, yeah. which kind of took wing in the 50s as yeah. immigration was happening into England, that the risk is that be- because he's writing it at a time where basically everyone is white, that there is a yeah. risk that that mythology becomes associated with a, a kind of England is for white people attitude. Um, I don't think, well, I think the, the very fact of the Amazon series, so this new series, which is the, has given us the peg for our, where they've, they've made a deliberate attempt, haven't they? They've got black hobbits and... Well, they've got Lenny know. Henry, who is probably yes. the most famous black West Midlander yeah. in England. So that seems to me entirely appropriate. I mean, it yeah. seems entirely with the grain of going with the grain of of everything that Tolkien's ambitions would have been, I think. Well, people who are Tolkien critics who defend Tolkien, sort of Tolkien scholars, will often say he created a world that was by definition multicultural. Yeah. And, uh, you know, different languages. Uh, I mean, basically, the theme of The Lord of the Rings is different species, I guess, working together. Um, yeah, the and three I, peoples. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's no doubt that Tolkien is a product of empire, that he's read Ryder Haggard, that he 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 never questions these things. Um, but why would he? I mean, most people don't in the 1930s and 1940s. We, it, it seems to me completely absurd to expect Tolkien to be a man of, I mean, he was barely even a man of the 20th century intellectually. <laughs> I think the weird thing about him is is the way in which again and again, he's so reactionary that he ends up becoming almost by our standards progressive. It's kind of like, you so know, the environmentalism. Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of like fascists ending up like communists. Um, it's that same kind of weird, I suppose, like a ring, isn't it? It's, you know, <laughs> very nice image, Tom. Do you think, I mean, his book has proved enormously successful, far more successful than, so his critics said at first, I mean, they were saying in the 1970s, even in the 1980s, it will eventually be forgotten and it's merely a diversion for, for teenagers. That clearly you know, has not worked out because it's proved enormously successful. But do you think it will continue to be one of the books that people read and reread? You know, people are going to be reading it in the 22nd century? I'd have thought so, because there's clearly something about it that that tugs you in. I mean, it's an incredibly well-told story, isn't it? Aside from anything else. It's an incredibly exciting adventure story um, with few parallels. Tom, I think um, it's fair to say that we could talk. We have there's so many things we haven't talked about. So we haven't talked about the streams of women. We haven't talked about Sam as our First World War Batman. Uh, we haven't talked about Gollum as much as I was hoping to. Basically, because we're Lord of the Rings nerds and we could have uh, bored on for hours, couldn't we? And we should confess at this stage that many years ago we had Lord of the Rings <laughs> marathon where we watched the extended editions of the films we together did. with takeaways, and our respective wives refused to join us. <laughs> And that um, did. that tells his own story, doesn't it? I'm but on that bombshell, I think we should probably let because we've been talking for over an hour, and we should probably let people go about the rest of their lives. But Tom, since we started with the beginning of the Hobbit, I think we should end with the end of the Lord of the Rings. Would you like me to give another of my nice readings? Yeah, like your Larkin, <laughs> like my Larkin, exactly. People were moved to tears by that. Oh, indeed, my readings from my own books, Adventures in Time, which are available <laughs> yeah. right now. And actually, J.R.R. Tolkien is the opening character of my book about the First World War, which if you have children or you know children or you've ever been a child, I advise you to buy forthwith. Uh, and of course, he's also a key figure in, your book, in my Dominion. chapter on the Second World War Dominion, which I will say strongly recommend that you buy. So, Joe uh, Tolkien was a great believer in uh, self <laughs> commercial self-promotion, wasn't he, Tom? <laughs> he truly right. was. Well, he appeared in a calendar. 
Yes, he did. But he's sitting. Is he? That when he's, he's fully encased he's in tweed, s- isn't he? I mean, yes, it's not a Chippendale stab. Sitting, yes. sitting next to an oak. I think Stanley Baldwin type. Uh, do. Yes, yes. He's dressed as yeah. Stanley Baldwin. Okay, here we go. At last, the three companions turned away, and never again looking back, they rode slowly homewards. And they spoke no word to one another until they came back to the Shire. But each had great comfort in his friends on the long grey road. At last, they rode over the downs and took the east road. And then Merry and Pippin rode on to Buckland, and already they were singing again as they went. But Sam turned to Bywater, and so came back up the hill as day was ending once more. And he went on, and there was yellow light and fire within, and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose drew him in and set him in his chair and put little Eleanor upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.